nearer my God to thee. What a beautiful song. And God has made us nearer to him through the incarnation of his son. God tabernacled, he pitched his stand amongst us by taking up human flesh. That's how God made himself nearer to us. So praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne again this morning to worship you through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, whom you appointed to be our mediator, having accomplished our redemption, having given us this glorious gospel, the gospel of salvation of all his people. Lord, we thank you for his faithfulness, for his willingness, for his reverent submission, even to the point of death, that he may serve us. For he needed not to go through the things that he went through, the suffering of death, the humiliation of death on the cross, the humiliation of being put in the grave. And yet, Lord, because of your glory in him, because of the people that you gave him before the foundation of the world, he suffered all these things. That he may bring us to himself. As he said, when I've been lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. All those that the Father gave him. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word that you have given us and preserved for us that we may learn these things. And Lord, we ask now for your blessing upon the ears of those who shall hear and are hearing, that they may hear what you are teaching about your own son and what he has done in the accomplishing of this glorious gospel. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I indicated earlier, we are still in John 5. And I purpose to do two more sermons after this one. To teach on the relationship between the old covenant, which is the law, the Ten Commandments being the heart of the law, and the gospel. Because men think that when we say that Christians are not under the law, we are saying that Christians are going hog wild. Or we are promoting for men to be sinners. No, men are already sinners. With or without the law. The law was given to make a discovery that you are already a sinner. We have to preach what God has given us to preach. We are not trying to please anybody. We are not trying to please any theological system. We are reading what the Lord himself said. He said, if you are reading Moses right, you have to come to me. If you are understanding what the law is telling you and is demanding from you, you have to run to Christ. Because all things exist. The law exists. Your sin exists that Christ may be exalted in the salvation of his people. 
It's all about Jesus. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. It's all about him. Salvation is in Christ. Salvation is not in your attempts at obeying the law. Salvation is in everything that Christ did to honor the law because he alone was able to honor the law of God. So go back to John 5, verses 45 to 47. It's a good launchpad to work this kind of understanding. In the future, if you have to go back and listen, you know we have part one of this teaching from the same verses, from the same chapter. We have part one all the way to part seven. So that will give someone an understanding of how these different pieces are connected to each other. So here's John 5, verses 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And our supporting text for today is going to be Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. So that will be the remainder of the verses in Romans 7. Romans 7, 14 to 25. And this is what it says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. If you believed Moses, part 5. We have been talking 
about the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant. And we have been arguing for the discontinuity of Moses, the law, the old covenant, in the history of salvation. Salvation has history. It has a beginning point and an end point. Salvation has history to it. And we have to understand that. And because salvation is history, all we are saying is that Christ is the end of all history. Christ is superior to all, and he is all and in all, and in him all things consist. All history is moving towards Jesus Christ. Because all history is in Jesus Christ. The promise of salvation did not begin with the new covenant. And did not begin with the old covenant. Which old covenant was formed between God and Israel when God took them out of Egypt. The covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. The promise of redemption was promised in the Garden of Eden when God slew some animals to provide a covering because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Redemption started to be talked about as soon as our first parents had sinned. And of course, the first question that God would come and ask man, the first question that God would ever come and ask man was, where are you? Where are you, Christo? This is a God who is already looking to recover his people. Because of their sin. God was already seeking that which was lost. But the story of redemption. Even goes beyond the garden of Eden. Into eternity past. When God made the eternal covenant with his son. The Lord Jesus Christ. God in eternity past determined to create a people for Christ. A people that Christ would come and redeem by his own blood. So that he could present them holy and blameless before God in love. And for this very reason, Jesus was this lamb slain. Before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So the story of redemption does not begin with a new covenant. It begins in the counsel of God. From eternity. When God purposed to create a people that would come 
and exalt the glory of Christ in their salvation. So when Jesus shows up, he is saying, I am the one that you are supposed to be looking to and not to the law. The law was given to prepare you to see him, to receive him. In Genesis 3, verses 14 to 16, this is what God said to the serpent after the fall. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you go, and dust you eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and the seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is all picturing and preparing us for the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman. And it is Moses who recorded all this for us and the promise of the coming seed who would bruise the head of the serpent, the devil. But when we are talking about the law, we are talking about that covenant on Mount Sinai that gave us the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments cannot be separated from the Old Covenant. For a covenant comes as a unit. You can't separate the different pieces that are in the unit. You take it as is as a whole. You do not pick and choose the terms of a contract that you want to be bound by. But you are bound by all the conditions and the obligations that have been imposed upon you. But we need to get more understanding because Christians do not understand the connection between Moses and Jesus. Moses and Jesus, the law and the gospel, the old and the new, have a relationship. And it is a very important relationship for us to understand. Jesus is not an improvement of Moses. Jesus is not an improvement of Moses. The new covenant is not a modified old covenant. It is not a reworked car that was in an accident that has just been given new tires and new rims and new paint. Rather, it is a completely new covenant that is unlike the old according to Jeremiah 31 verse 32. I'll give you 
an example of how these things are connected. You have been to a lot of concerts, to shows. And if you have a popular artist or a musician, you usually have some band that are called the Curtain Raisers. A curtain Raiser is an entertainment that happens before a more important one comes. If it is music, we usually have some small local band. And the local band is usually unknown. It's just local. That opens up the show to warm up the people for the real show. But they are not the star of the show. They play to warm up the crowd to the main event and performer. But as soon as the real star of the show has come up on the stage, the curtain raisers have to get off the stage and their equipment. The curtain raisers are not necessarily bad, but that is not the reason why people came to the show. They came to see the star. So Moses and the law and the old covenant are the curtain raisers. They were given to warm up the show for the arrival of the big act, the real star, Jesus Christ. But once Jesus showed up on the stage, everybody had to get off the stage. John the Baptist has to get off the stage and say, Jesus must increase and he must decrease. Moses and Elijah have to get off the stage by being overshadowed by the cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so all things have to decrease and give stage to Jesus because it is he that God determined to be the star of the show from eternity. So the law prepared us to meet him. The law prepared us to anticipate him. The law prepared us to want to know him and to see him. But in what way, in a salvific sense, did the law prepare us for Jesus to take the stage? The law showed us that we are sinners. It accounted for our sins. It increased our transgressions. This is necessary for Christ to be revealed. If you are not a sinner, there's no purpose of Christ coming. So the Lord diagnosed us as lawbreakers and not lawkeepers. He told us we could not do it and had to look to one who is able to perform the law to God's satisfaction. And so, the law had a timeline in the history of salvation to which it had 
jurisdiction over a sinner. For those who are in Christ. Because as long as you are not in Christ, the law continues to have jurisdiction over you. Apostle Paul told us in Romans 7.1 and said, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. But we who are in Christ died in Christ, so the law has no more jurisdiction over us. But once Christ came, the law had successfully performed its function and had directed us to him, the bridegroom. And once the bridegroom arrived and had the bride, it was time for the law and the prophets to step aside. And I'll give you another example. We use GPS navigation when we are driving in unfamiliar places, when we go out of town. But as soon as we get back to Columbus and we know our way home, we don't need the GPS anymore. And we turn it off. Actually, it becomes annoying. Amen. And so the law was turned off because it had showed us where we needed to go. Jesus Christ. We died to the law in the death and resurrection of Christ. The death of Christ removed us from the arena where the law had jurisdiction. That is, where the law had power to condemn. To an arena where it can reach us. As I gave example in the previous sermon, the law has become like a shark that is outside the water. The shark can't breathe outside the water. It dies. But if the shark is in water, it has power. It has life. And if you happen to get too close by, you are fish food. So now because of Christ, the law cannot breathe so as to condemn you. It can't bite you. You who are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Jesus removed the law by fulfilling it. Giving it everything that it demanded of his people. And then paid for everything that his people owed. And then removed the curse that the law brought. And then he nailed the law on the cross. Now, that which is nailed has been immobilized. Sister Dassel, if I nail you, you are immobilized. You won't be able to do anything. Now, the scriptures are clear to say Jesus nailed the law onto the cross. Like the two thieves on the cross. They could not take themselves down. And that's why they were bugging Jesus. And say, 
if you are the son of man, take us down and yourself. If we are preaching the gospel and we are not bringing this understanding, we are preaching Judaism. And there's no cross in Judaism. You need the cross to have a gospel. You need the cross for salvation. And this is why people stumbled at Jesus. And they still stumble even now because they want to bring their own cookie recipes for their salvation. And the law provides that avenue. It makes one think that they are a worthy partner to the work of Christ. People want to help Jesus to save them. Because according to them, they can't get anything for free. They don't want to get anything for free. For to get something for free is too humbling for them. And they don't want to be humbled. Not even by the Son of God. People don't want to read and understand the teaching of the New Testament about the gospel, about the function, the purpose of the law. The law has discontinuity for those who are in Christ. Professing Christians are the ones who are dragging us back to the law and to make it relevant. And the main reason why they drag it is because they think they can do it. Otherwise, if they knew they could not do it, if they knew they could not honor the law for what the law actually demands of them, they would not do it. They are getting blinded again to the teeth and venom that is in the law. They think that they are honoring God like the Jews before them. They think they're honoring God. But you can't honor God outside believing Jesus. Those who want to go back to the law are, according to Apostle Paul, having a zeal without knowledge. This is in Romans 10, 2 to 4. We have read this verse many times. It's always going to be one of the verses that we read. Romans 10 to 4. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law was given as x-rays, as I said, to diagnose your sinful condition and after that to show you 
your only hope of deliverance. The law was given to reveal your nakedness, your open shame that you may be covered by the righteousness of God in Christ. Apostle Paul, who was a Jew, understood the function of the law and he is going to tell us some more about what the Lord discovered in him. The Lord discovered in him that which was his greatest enemy, the sin that lay in him. Which sin, once aroused, he could not tame. He could not put any chains to the sin. Rather, it's the sin that put him in chains. This is what the law did. The law came and sprayed some chemical to reveal your fingerprints that were on the cookie jar. It revealed that you had stolen and eaten all the cookies, but even more, that you were still coveting for more. You were coveting for more wicked things to do. Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, 6, But now we have been released from the law. So that statement is saying, is picturing you as someone who was bound, who was in prison to the law. But now we have been released having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So now with that statement, we can also say, who is a Christian? A Christian is one who realizes by the spirit of God that they have been released from law. They realized that the law could only bind them into slavery of a works righteousness that does not save. The true Christian realizes that obedience to faith is the better way to serve God. It is serving God in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The true Christian, the one born again from above, born again by the Spirit, realizes that the sin in them deceives. It deceives them to think that they can do the law so that they can get killed by it. So they run away. They run away from the law. Sin acts as a bait to draw us into the mousetrap. We think we can just get in and get the peanut butter and then we shortly will be on our way. But as soon as we put our nose to get in, we realize we have been trapped. We have been trapped and we can't get out. As many mice have unfortunately land too late. 
But apart from the law, apart from the law, sin is dead. But when the law came, sin took advantage of the law and produced all kinds of coveting. But not only that, it produced death. So what we have to conclude from that is the law was not given to produce life in you. But to produce death. You see the difference? The law was not given to produce life, but to produce death. And so Apostle Paul has been laboring and working the theology of the relationship between the law, sin, and death. And if you still remember, 1 Corinthians 15.56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And as I have said before, sin and law are like that glue stick that you have to open both ends to get the adhesive to stick. That glue stick, I actually saw one at work. That glue stick with two tubes. If you just open the one, it doesn't work. You need to open both. So, law and sin are exactly like that. If you don't have law, guess what? Sin is dead. And if you remove the sin, then the law doesn't do anything to you. This is what is happening in Romans 7. It's a glorious teaching in Romans 7. The book of Romans is a glorious book. The apostle here is giving us a theological treatise, a theological presentation, a theological treatment, an application of the relationship of sin, law, and death. That is the point. That is what he's doing. A lot of people go to Romans 7 to teach the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. And it's there. But the fundamental teaching here is the relationship that is there of sin, law, and death. And we have to understand this first and foremost. And this theological teaching covers all the experience of Apostle Paul pre-conversion and post-conversion. Because we have two camps. When it comes to teaching Romans 7, you have two camps that say, one says, in Romans 7, that was Paul before he was born again. And then we have another camp that says, no, this was Paul after he was born again. And both groups have reasons for doing that. But they miss the point. Apostle Paul is not talking about the experience 
as much as he is teaching the relationship of the law to sin and death and the condition that one finds themselves in because of that relationship. That is what he's doing. He is teaching you that the law was given for a specific purpose and that was to discover sin in you and to make a discovery for you that this is the reason why you die. And that you have nothing that you can do by yourself to get out of that. But then at the end of it, he gives you the solution to that problem. So in Romans 7, 14 to 25, we are going to find some good understanding. And that's going to be our main text. And we've been building the introduction. And this was a long introduction. Maybe a sermon. This will be more than a sermon for some people. So in developing the relationship of sin, law, and death, the Apostle Paul has said, that which was good, that which was supposed to give life, has instead produced death in him. And he says, the problem is not the law, the problem is the sin that is in me. It's because that I'm a sinner that the law is producing death in me. He says, the reason why the law produced death in me is in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. But I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. The law was spiritual, and the law is spiritual. And that means the law is good. The law is heavenly. It comes from God. So it has to be good. But there's a problem. There's a contrast. Apostle Paul is fleshly. He is from the earth. He is sinful. And so he is opposed to everything spiritual. He is of the flesh and is sold into bondage to sin. And anyone who is in bondage can do anything. And he says, I'm in bondage to sin. I need someone to set me free if I'm ever going to honor the law. So his condition as a sinner is hopeless. And it is like one who had been sold into slavery. And such a person has no rights or power over those to whom they were sold. And so Apostle Paul says, the fleshly nature and the sinful nature has him in bondage. And he will need someone outside himself to redeem him from this slavery. And that is the condition of you and me. The condition of all humanity, no matter how pretty and powerful and successful they are. 
they are in chains to sin. And because of that, Apostle Paul says in verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. So the effect of that slavery to sin is that it has messed his mind up. Sin really messes our minds. Sin really messes your mind that you lose discernment and do some really crazy things. And we hear in the news every day of celebrities and politicians being caught doing some unbelievable things. But we who know the truth should not be surprised. It is within their abilities to do. They too are in chains to sin and are doing its bidding. But because they are not born again, they do not hate the things they do. Politicians lie because they are not born again. And they don't hate lying. That's how they became politicians. Apostle Paul, on the other hand, hates the things that he does because he was born again. When you were in your sin, you were not hating the things that you were doing. So this tells us that Apostle Paul is born again as he teaches this. He is giving us his theological experience and saying, this is what sin has done to me and this is what the law has done to me and this is what death has done to me. He sees that there is a disconnection between what he does and what he ought to do. And he is applying that theology, that discovery to his experience as a Christian who is born again. So he says in verse 16, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So the fact and reality that he does the very thing that he does not want to do is testimony that the problem is not with the law. The law is good. And he is forced to no other conclusion. And this is a very important theological understanding. Because when God condemns sinners, it shall be such that they will agree with him and say, yes, we deserved everything. The law was indeed good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So he makes an interesting statement. And by this he is not denying responsibility for his sin. But he is helping us to identify this thing that dwells in him. And it is this sin that makes it impossible for him to do the things that are right and good. He says, the sin dwells in me. It has its abode in me. It has its habitation in me. Sin has set up house 
and shop in him and is going nowhere. It cohabitates with the person. Sin is not renting space just for a few weeks or for a few months as it saves a little bit of money to buy a better place somewhere. The apostle says no. Sin dwells in me. Sin dwells in you. The sin says this is my house. And I'm not going anywhere. Sin says I have fully paid my mortgage. And this is where I live. And I am retiring in this house. And I am not downsizing either. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So Apostle Paul discovers that there's nothing good that goes in him. And this is very important for all men, if they have to be saved, to realize that there's nothing good that goes in them. That's the purpose of the law. To tell you that there's nothing. There are no good things that dwell in you. And this has happened because of the work of the law. Exposing that he is a sinner. The law has given him an x-ray report of his spiritual condition. And he looks at the report. And he sees nothing good to look at. All the numbers are off the charts. And his rightful conclusion is, there's nothing good in me. There's nothing good that lives in me. And that's the confession of one who is born again. That's the confession of a Christian. You need to have something good to dwell in you if you have to see life. You need to have something good to dwell in you if you have to see life. But there is nothing naturally good in a sinner. But only such things as God has given you by grace. By grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own. It is a gift of God. Lest you should boast. Faith is a gift. Righteousness, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, all these good things have been given you. And these things are external to the abilities that we have as sinners. But the apostle says, but the willing is present in me. I have a willingness to do good. My mind and my heart are willing to obey. But the actual doing of good is not happening. Now if there is no doing of good, there is no life. Because Jesus was doing good. Jesus was obeying the law of God. And God raised him from the dead. 
just having a willingness to do good does not save you. You have to be good. So you need more than just doing. You need to be good inside. And people want to do the law that they may feel good about themselves. But what they don't realize is that they need to actually do good according to God's standard. And you are incapable of doing good according to God's standard in this body of flesh. So Apostle Paul says, verse 19, and you know that we are getting close by the verse that we are in. Right? We are getting close to Revelation. Because we are going to preach all the way to the book of Revelation today. Verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. So even in his walk, the apostle realizes that there is a good that he wants to do. But he doesn't do it. He finds continuously that he actually practices the evil that he does not want to do. And you too will see that there are many things, many good things that will come to your mind to do. Some things that you dream to do to honor the Lord when you get this job, get this house, get this much money. But as soon as those things show up, guess what? You practice the very evil that you do not want. When people get sick, they pray and say, Lord, if you can just raise me one more time. Just one more time and I'll come and worship you. I'll come and save you. But as soon as they gain strength, guess what? On Sunday they are gone. They don't want to come and worship God. They are gone. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. The Apostle Paul says, I've actually planned and determined in my mind to do good. And I'm serious. I actually want to do good. But then, when that happens, I discover that I am failing at every point to do the good. So I have to come to some conclusion. I have to come to some understanding. And the understanding is, there has to be more to me than what I thought. There's more to my person than what I know. There's something to me that is overpowering my best intentions, my desire to do good. And he says, it's sin that goes in me. That is what is actually driving things so that I'm unable to do that which I would want to do. Verse 21. 
I find then the principle, the law, that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. You may have a translation, a Bible translation that says law in the place of principle. And you may see that the L is lowercase L, not uppercase. That law here is not the same thing as the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments. It's principle. It's principle. It is saying the principle or the idea that evil is indeed present in me, even the one who wants to do good. And this understanding of principle of sin or the principle of sin is important because a lot of people think they are sinners because they actually did something bad. But the Apostle Paul says, no, sin is just a reality of your being and is inseparable from your being whether you do anything bad or not. Sinner is your first and last name. And that's what should have been written on your birth certificate. We need to go and change your birth certificate and say sinner. But there's even some more understanding that is important in the doctrine of sanctification. There are some who teach sinless perfectionism. Crystal knows. She has a friend who believes in sinless perfectionism that in this life, you can actually be sinless and perfect like Jesus was. That can be true if what Apostle Paul is telling us here is true. But this is Apostle Paul who is giving also his experience as a Christian. He is saying he finds himself with a nature that is opposing everything that he would want to do. And he actually finds himself doing things that would condemn him. He is doing the things that he did not want to do. And the things that he did not want to do are things that are opposed to what the law of God requires him to do. So, a Christian who is telling the truth, we have to give the same confession as Apostle Paul and say, I find it in my experience that my mind is willing to do good, but I always see something happening that is different, opposed to what my mind would want me to do. So he says in verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, I don't like that translation. That's the NSB. I like the New King James better. It says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Now that sounds better. So he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Who is the inner man? Who is the inward man? It is the new spiritual nature. The born-again nature that is driven by the Spirit. The new creation that is in the regenerate person. One who is born again. 
The Apostle Paul says, Yes, I do delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But what happened, Paul? If you saw delight in the law of God according to the inward man, what is the problem then, Paul? Verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. So Apostle Paul sees a different and opposing principle. In the members of his body, he sees all the members of his body, his eyes, they are sinning. His mind, his thoughts, as he is just sleeping in his own bed by himself, he discovers that, oh, wow, I'm a sinner. I am sinning even if I'm lying in my own bed. His feelings, his hands, his ears, the things that he wants to listen to are the things that he is not supposed to be listening to. Are doing contrary things and not just that. They are waging a war with his mind, with his spirit. So it is a war zone. This is not just some skirmish with firecrackers. This is big guns. And if you are in a war, it's a war that is fought to kill. Sin is fighting to kill you. To win. To conquer. The law of sin, the principle of sin, is warring with his mind. The mind here is the inward man. But things are not good. Things are not good. Things are not good. It does not look like Apostle Paul is winning. It looks like Apostle Paul has been beaten 10-0. You have to pay attention to this. It's a war and it looks like he has been beaten. He has been made a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in his members. Let me read verse 23 again. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. So it's him who has been made a prisoner, not sin and death. He has been made a prisoner of the law of sin. And because he has been made a prisoner, he has a master. A prisoner is one who has lost the fight. A prisoner of war, P-O-W-S, right? He has lost the fight, and if you are in a war and you have lost the fight, guess what? They arrest you. And he is in chains and has not freedom to do otherwise than what the master tells him. That's the situation that Apostle Paul has. When it comes to the contest between the law of sin and that of his mind, 
The conclusion is Paul is not a victor, but is rather a prisoner. He is in chains to sin. And this is what the law is doing for you and all who are in Christ. It is supposed to tell you that you are captive to the law of sin and death. The law does not give life. As long as you have this body of flesh, it's impossible for you to honor the law by yourself. And yet this is the same struggle that we find ourselves as we walk as Christians. The law of sin is still a reality in us. And so Apostle Paul, having done all that, having explained all that, this is his point. He could have saved us everything that he wrote. But for you to come to verse 24, you need to understand what he has taught. He wants you to understand that this is what the law is doing. It is supposed to take you to a point where you realize that you are a prisoner to the law of sin and death. So he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now Apostle Paul realized that the struggle that he has needs a who? Because he has been doing things. He has been seeing things happening in the members of his body that are contrary to the things that his mind tells him to do. And he comes to the conclusion that I need someone. I need someone who is able to deliver me from this body of death or else I die. Apostle Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin. And because of that, I can't escape. I can't escape. And because of that, I am a wretched man. I am a miserable man enduring a trial that I can't win. I am in a war that I can't win. And this is the purpose of the law. This is the purpose of the law. It is for you to come to the conclusion that you are a prisoner to sin, that you are a wretched man or woman. And if anybody thinks that they have strength to do the law, <laughs> they don't understand the law. They are playing. The law only has one conclusion for you. Wretched sinner. Ruined sinner. And this is the x-ray report of the law. That's what it gives you. That's the diagnosis. Because you see, Apostle Paul is doing a diagnosis here for us. Wretched man that you are. If people are talking law, it means one thing. God has not taught them. Because when God does this to a person, he is teaching them. Apostle Paul is teaching us because it's God who taught him. It's God who is teaching us through Apostle Paul. You need to be taught of God to come to this conclusion.
everyone who is taught of God realizes that when it comes to salvation, the law's function is to expose their wretchedness and not to make you good. And so Apostle Paul tells us how one escapes from this prison and be saved. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, oh wow, I thought you were going to say a whole lot more. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just one line, Paul, after having discussed this doctrine for almost two chapters. And it comes to just one line. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God and not to the law. Not to the Pope. Not to Mary. Or anybody. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Apostle Paul, is that all you have to say? Yes, that's all. Having worked this theology from Romans 6, he comes to the conclusion with just one line. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. If you understand sin and law, you can only say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And you stop there. There's nothing about Thank God and tithing. Thank God and baptism. It is just thank God through Jesus Christ. Because that is what takes care of everything. So here Apostle Paul takes us to the experience of the one who has just thanked God. Through Jesus Christ and says, well, apparently there are two opposing natures that are resident in the believer. As I explained, some people deny that, but that's what Apostle Paul says. Because Apostle Paul can come to the conclusion that he will have his salvation in Christ if he was not saved. So he is talking about this part of the experience further along in the experience of the Christian life. So he tells us of the two natures and says, So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So with his mind, with his regenerate mind, he sees the goodness of the law of God. But with respect to his day-to-day -day experience and living, he sees himself serving a different law. The law of sin with his flesh. So now, Romans 7 does not end in Romans 7. Romans 7 actually ends in Romans 8. And Apostle Paul says, And because of God through Christ, the story changes. The story changes. He has come to the end of himself, but that's not the final commentary. 
the final commentary is when Jesus shows up. Romans 8. We'll do the first four verses in Romans as our conclusion. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Therefore, he's saying, after everything that I have told you, everything that I have struggled to explain and that I have experienced, this is the final commentary on the matter. No condemnation. No condemnation. <laughs> so to say no condemnation is to say justification. But how does one who has been serving the law of sin with the members of his flesh live? Jesus Christ. Even to the point of death, you are going to have the struggle. But the scriptures say, God says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So one has to be in Christ for this pronouncement to be made. You have to be in Jesus to escape condemnation. And the apostle says, those who are in Christ walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Their mind walks the pattern of their walking. is pictured as following a leader. You are walking after someone. So you are either walking after the flesh, which means your bent is always towards the fleshly things. Or you are walking after the spirit, which means you are following the direction of the spirit. It's not saying that you are righteous in yourself. It's just saying you have the two. You have two leaders to follow. You follow the spirit or you follow the flesh. And these lead in opposite and opposing directions. So in verse 2 he says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So you have been made free from the law of sin and death. You have been made free. And what does he use free? Because he has captured this understanding as slavery and bondage that you need to be set free from. The law of the spirit of life in Christ has made us free. Don't miss this. It's the law of the spirit of life, not of death. The spirit sets you free and gives you life. The flesh subjects you to sin and death. But the freedom that we have been given is only found in Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 3. We come to an end. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. And if you have did in your Bible, you may see it in uh, italics. It means it's not in the original text. 
it was supplied to make sense of the statement. God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So you see that as an offering too. So the law could not do anything for you who were in the flesh. It was weak through the flesh. The law was weak to save you. The law has no power to save you because of the weakness of your flesh. You are dead in trespasses and sins, so you can't be saved. You can't even raise your hand to say, pick me up from the grave. You are too weak. You need someone who gives you life first so that you can get up. So the law required you to produce good because it was good. The law required you to have life, but you did not have life. Your flesh was infested by sin and so could only produce death instead. But God solved the problem. God solved the problem for you by sending his own son. The son of God came as a man, the incarnation, and he clothed himself in human flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh, but without sin. And condemned not you, but the sin that condemned you. So you see this powerful stuff. You have to pay attention. The son of God condemned sin. In his own flesh. So sin needed to be condemned. Because you can't kill something that is not condemned. Jesus went on the cross because he was condemned to die. You were condemned to die. And sin had condemned you to die. And so for sin to be removed, it also needs to be condemned. So Jesus comes and he makes a judgment of condemnation on, the, on sin and he condemns sin to death. If sin is condemned to die, then sin was condemned by the Son of God. And it took him alone and not Mary and not the Pope or any dead saints. I mean, this is serious business though. Because men are multiplying foolishness by their traditions. Jesus alone is the one who condemned sin that was in the flesh. For what reason, Paul? Verse 4. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the law had a requirement. And when Christ condemned sin in the flesh, he says... The requirement of the law was fulfilled in you, in Christ. Who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The requirement of the law had to be fulfilled one way or another. The righteousness of the law had to be fulfilled in us through the obedience of Christ as our substitute. As our surety. And because of that we are not under the law. 
How can you be under the law that has already been fulfilled? The requirement, whatever the law required of you, was fully fulfilled and discharged in Christ Jesus. And once it's been fulfilled, it was removed. The language of the New Testament is fulfillment and setting aside for something better. The serving of God by the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. And so, having said all that, the Lord Jesus Christ would come and say to the Jews, you guys don't get it. Moses wrote about me. I am the one who is on the stage. It is Moses who shall accuse you. It is the law that shall accuse you before the Father. Because if you had believed the writings of Moses, you would have believed me. Moses was setting the stage for my appearance. And you still wanted to listen to the curtain raisers. If you understand the law right, it has to lead you to cry out and say, I am a prisoner to the law of sin and death. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You need a who. We have talked about this. Salvation in Christ Jesus is a who issue. Is the Pope your who? Is Mary your who? Or is Jesus your who? But the gospel says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have been delivered from the law of sin and death. And because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you, we glorify you. We thank you for the work of Christ in salvation. We thank you for the work of the law in salvation. For it set the stage for the revelation of the coming of your Son. It set the stage by teaching us that we were sinners, exposing us as sinners, exposing us as transgressors who could not do it that we may find our fulfillment in Christ and his obedience. Lord, we honor you and we thank you for your Holy Spirit for teaching us these things. For there are many who do not know that they are prisoners to the law of sin and death. They don't know the way of salvation. They don't know that to have life they need a who. As Apostle Paul said, who shall deliver me? O oh, wretched man that I am, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And may this be the confession of all your people, that Christ alone is our refuge. He is our deliverer. He is our salvation. Lord, we thank you for all who shall hear, and may you cause them to see the things of Christ. May you teach them, open their minds and hearts, that they may hear these things and believe these things. We pray and thank you for all the saints who are gathered here. Lord, we pray for grace in the days ahead. They have many things to accomplish according to the flesh in this season. But as they do this, Lord, we pray that they walk 
according to the Spirit. That you draw them to yourself and continue to cause them to look to Christ. We pray and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.